Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back. In several interviews I've had, I heard the name Delmonico's mentioned. This is the swanky New York City restaurant for the rich and famous. There, Gilded Age plutocrats dined on lobster Newburg, which was a decadent entree made from lobster, naturally, and a sauce of butter, cognac, cream, and eggs. Delmonico's also had a steak and potatoes dish that was another favorite. It was diced potatoes doused in cream and Gruyere cheese and breadcrumbs. And the house-cut steak is seared in an herby butter sauce. Rich describes both the taste and the clientele, but it's only a small impression of Gilded Age foodways. A few months ago, I put out a call on the one-year anniversary for a historian of food to come and join me for a chat. And I've had, I had to thank Chris Nichols and Julia Irwin for suggesting the very same person, Dr. Helen Zoe Veit. I read Helen's book, Modern Food, Moral Food, years ago and was awed by her ability to show how food was political and diplomatic. It was a product of nature and a product of industry, and it was a force for social and cultural change. Helen has done so much since that first book. She directs the What America Ate Project, which is a digital archive of Great Depression foodways, which we'll speak a little bit about in today's discussion. She's also the editor of the America Food and History book series with Michigan State University Press. And some of those books include sectional histories about food in the Civil War era and a book about the Gilded Age foodways. Now, Helen is working on a book about picky eaters, and we'll talk a little bit about the surprising revelations she has made about children and food from 100 years ago to today. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Helen. Thanks so much, Mike. (laughs) Yeah, I'm delighted you're here. So one of the things that I was talking about in the anniversary episode is that we haven't talked about food on the show yet. And um, I'm I'm delighted to have the foremost historian of food in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. <laughs> so the first question has got to be, what, if anything, is distinctive about the food of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era? Gosh, well, one thing that is, I think, interesting to everybody, whether they're a historian or not, is that so many things about food start to become recognizably modern in this era. If you look at what Americans were eating even a generation earlier in, let's say, the mid-19th century, even the late 19th century, so many things look so different. You know, people were eating, you know, fish and beans for breakfast, and they were preserving their food at home, and there weren't really refrigerators in most households. 
Um, and I could go on and on with the differences between the 19th century, especially the mid 19th century and now. However, fast forward just a generation to the early 20th century, say 1910, and a whole lot of those things were suddenly no longer true. A lot of Americans were buying much of their food in stores instead of producing it themselves at home. Uh, there were many more canned goods and boxed foods available. Many people were starting to get refrigerators, including some electric refrigerators, not just ice boxes for the very first time. Um, food was being shipped nationally and internationally in a way it hadn't been before. Now, that's not to say there hadn't been plenty of international shipping in some ways. You know, Americans had been drinking coffee and tea and using sugar. Um, those things had all been shipped internationally for you know many, many years. But that starts to become routine and normal for all sorts of food, including ordinary produce that people could get. So to me, one of the most fascinating things about the era is this transition to modernity and ways that things weren't yet recognizably modern to us. So it's this fascinating mix, uh, both for a historian to dig into, but I think for ordinary people to, to explore. And it, it, in some ways, can make things that we think of as normal seem strange to ourselves because it's there are there's these strange um income these strange moments where you say wait why did they do it like that and the flip side of that question always is why do we do it as we do you know what's what's our own context so it's it's fabulous for engaging the wider public it's great to teach about i i love the topic i'm, I'm i don't anticipate being tired of this era anytime soon <laughs> That's so good because that's exactly what it segues nicely into my my big question about Gilded Age and progressive era food. And your your first book, Modern Food, Moral Food, has really become one of the standard texts for understanding Gilded Age culture and food. And it's almost 10 years old now, I think, in and around it there. It is, yep. Uh, and we've seen so much attention paid to food and not just in the Gilded Age and progressive era, but more generally. And I'm constantly harping on about how much the Gilded Age and Progressive Era changed the world as we know it. And I'd yep. like to back <laughs> me up that the food revolution, it happens in the 1890s to 1910s, maybe a little bit later, right? I mean, food security, nutritional science, all that's happening now. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think when historians study an era, it's awfully tempting to apply the word revolution to their own topic because we see those changes. But with food, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that there really were revolutionary changes happening. If you just think about nutrition science alone and how much it revolutionized what Americans thought about what they were eating and how it worked with their bodies, it's really profound. I mean, people didn't have even a really basic understanding of food energy up until the turn of the 20th century. Um, it seems absolutely intuitive to us today because we have all grown up, you know, hearing probably from a pretty young age about food giving us energy and calories and some foods having more calories than other or more energy. People didn't have that, what seems to us like this very basic concept until calories were first able to be applied to food energy in the, in the 1890s, really, really, really late. Um, and that changed, um, you know, immediately how people started to think about um, food. Now, one interesting thing is that when we today hear about calories, we generally think of that in a negative sense. You know, if you're if you're watching, you know, what you eat, 
most people are trying to eat fewer calories. You know, if you're living in a in a situation of abundance, as middle class Americans certainly are in most cases, not all Americans. Um, however, back 120 years ago, many people immediately thought about calories in a positive light. You know, they wanted to get as most calories as they could for their money. And so early calorie charts and early advice about calories are, are kind of fascinatingly jarring because experts were advising people how to get the most calories they could, you know, in ways that sometimes um, <laughs> could be kind of funny. You know, they advised poor people, for example, to buy chocolate. Um, some experts did because chocolate was so high in calories and um, that seemed like, you know, a relatively good use of their money. And they advised poor people never to spend their money, never to waste their money on fruits and vegetables, which had such little, had so, so few calories. Now that mentality, this calorie mentality around the, you know, the very early 1900s quickly butted up against another part of the nutrition revolution, which was the discovery of vitamins. You know, that too is something that we can think of as commonsensical, that fruits and vegetables are good for us. People did not have that notion in the 19th century. Now, many people, children included, loved vegetables. They, they yearned for vegetables when they were out of season. They ate them enthusiastically when they could, but they did it mainly for pleasure, as, you know, as part of a diverse diet, um, you know, which they you know, prioritized for, because, for aesthetic reasons, because that was enjoyable. Only when calories were discovered, which is around 1910, for the first time could people say, oh, there's, there are nutritional reasons why fruits and vegetables are not only potentially delicious, but really, really important. And of course, I should say people knew about scurvy earlier. There were these kind of anomalies where, where scientists had theorized there might be some invisible trace elements in fruits and vegetables, but they, that was not held up. Um, by, by rigorous evidence until the discovery of vitamins. And in fact, when people first started using microscopes and putting you know, small slides of you know, produce under the microscope, that only seemed to confirm how nutritionally vacuous they were because all they saw was starch and water up until the discovery of vitamins. So that was huge that all of a sudden by 1915, people, you know, this new generation can say, you, know, you, should, you, can, you should eat for fuel the food you are eating gives you energy and certain things give you more energy than others. And certain foods are nutritionally more important than others. Of course, you know, all of the, I don't want to oversimplify. Of course, people had thought some things were important for your body before, especially meat. Meat had seemed preeminently important to many Americans, but this was a whole new, very granular level of talking about individual foods. And, and that was a revolutionary change. I, I'm sorry, I have to bring you back to the children ate vegetables because <laughs> they were delicious. Oh, yes. When, when I, I know your, your next book is going to be about picky eating. Mm -hmm. when, is, when does that change happen where vegetables become completely antithetical to the life of a child? Yeah, so one of my chapters in, in my, my book, which I'm writing about the history of children's picky eating is called, or there, it's, the tentative title is, you know, Children's Most Notorious Enemy. And it's in the 1950s that, that this becomes this watershed, kind of commonsensical, um, it, it, become, it starts to seem commonsensible that children don't like vegetables, can't like vegetables, absolutely not true 100 years earlier. I mean, absolutely not true. I'm, I've actually 
just spent the last month or so reading dozens and dozens of memoirs of 19th century childhoods and children's just ecstatic delight in a huge variety of vegetables is really, really interesting to read as a 21st century person. So it's, it's, it's pretty interesting, this change, one, one of many changes. Well, I'm thinking as a 21st century dad, it's very interesting. I mean, is there any way I can bring my kids to <laughs> zucchini? And I mean, actually, they, they quite like broccoli, but I, I, it does seem that it's accepted that vegetables are not really uh, a part of their diet. The other um, revolution, I guess, I think that you talk about in your your first book, uh, Modern Food, Moral Food, is that food choices are moral choices, which is a, a, a great line. How does food intersect with social questions? Ooh, <laughs> that's a big one. So in all sorts of ways, um, you know, one, uh, I'll just, a quick digression, uh, although I'll get back to how it relates to your question. When I, when I first proposed doing a dissertation on food, modern food, moral food, um, it came out of a dissertation I wrote um, at Yale in the, in the 2000s. And when I first contemplated doing a dissertation on food, I was very nervous because I thought the subject would be perceived as a frivolous one, something that was fun and light and maybe also feminized, but not serious. And so actually, when I first was crafting a dissertation topic, I purposefully looked at food in the World War I era. And I, I, I concentrated, among other things, on America's first foreign aid program, which had been during World War I, um, because I thought that that gave me some ballast, some, some, you know, the kind of legitimacy and seriousness. This is real history. You know, I've since just become... <laughs> You know, in the course of writing the dissertation and then later the book, the subject itself gives one confidence in the utter seriousness of food all on its own. Of course, it's fun. It's interesting. It's relatable. But without food, we die. And you don't have to scratch the surface of any society very deep to find that human reality. You know, one of the ways that that was expressed in, you know, the society and culture of the American Gilded Age was in poverty. You know, many Americans were poor. Uh, poor Americans were spending 50% or more of their incomes on food in this era. And um, many people were struggling with not getting enough. Now, I just, uh, America at the, at the very same time was probably the most abundant nation, certainly the most abundant modern nation on earth. So, you know, we were in no way abnormal in this, if, if anything, you know, there was more general abundance in America. And this was an age, obviously, of, you know, immense immigration, in part from people escaping hunger elsewhere. Nevertheless, hunger was a major problem for Americans getting enough food. And when I mentioned earlier, those experts blithely recommending that poor people spend their money on chocolate, you know, this, these, these changes, this modernization of food had you know, an obvious dark side in the sense that it invited rationalization. It invited people saying, well, if we now know to some degree how much energy foods can contain, what nutrients they contain, we can optimize our diets. We can rationally approach them. We can eat not in the name of pleasure or of tradition or comfort, etc., but we can eat in the name of rationality and science and improving our bodies and economics, you know, eat, spending as little as possible on food, something that people were sometimes particularly uh, eager to impose on other people. And 
for example, some um, industrialists, factory owners, handed out calorie tables to their employees, telling them, you know, we do not need to raise your wages. You need to spend less money on food. Here's how. Here's, you know, the, the least you can spend on food. People immediately raced to that, that question, what's the least you could spend on food, in an effort to some extent to encourage poor people to spend even less than they already were. Um, you know, food studies of the time, there were, there were not very many, but some, you know, a few very valuable studies of what um, poor people in various regions were eating and what they were spending. And there was middle-class condemnation of poor people buying, you know, anything that wasn't perceived as being a sort of rational, rationalized um, sort of choice for, for what sort of food they should be buying. So that's one way that food in the era had this kind of social inflection. Um, there are a lot of others too. I mean, one thing is gender. I mean, I said earlier that, um, you know, as I started to become a historian of food, I was a little wary of taking on a subject that seemed to me to be potentially feminized just because I didn't want to be um, seen as doing something that was that wasn't serious. You know, this is maybe my own biases, you know, creeping in two decades ago. Um, but women at the time certainly saw food as something that was particularly in their domain, something that was a question of of housekeeping, of management, um, something that um, gave them as food became obviously more serious with its with this infusion of science in the early 20th century, so did many women suddenly say, you know, if food is, turns out to be this, you know, that's something that's not just a domestic individual question. If food is actually something that we should be thinking about as a nation, something that we could rationalize, something once World War I started um, that has bearing on these, these great international questions, then women's work suddenly takes on a whole new look. Um, and is obviously important. And of course, you know, the 1910s was the era of the fight for suffrage. And many women made this connection that, I mean, this is part of, you know, municipal housekeeping. Uh, you know, many historians way before me have, have talked about this. But food was a very important pillar in this um, recasting of women's work as something that, in fact, was, was had a public side and a national side, something that was, um, that was political. And there's there's others that you talk about in your book, too. I mean, I think that's what's so wonderful about your book is you're able to connect the what often seems like the daily uh, our daily bread, maybe, so to speak, uh, <laughs> with, you know, with big questions that are of, of really major importance. You know, I was going to ask you about why World War One plays such an important part, but I think you you've answered that with with the suffragette question and with uh, and with broadly more speaking, the idea that this is serious stuff, that food uh, and, and, you know, we talked recently to um, Scott uh, uh, Nelson about his book about wheat, which has recently come out and how important wheat has been for the United States and, and for the world. Um, I imagine listeners might also think about 1906, the Pure Food and Drug and the Meat Inspection Act um, as examples of gov government regulation. I mean, can you give us a little sense about how food was regulated in this period, and and not just those two acts, but more broadly speaking, about how governments and chemists and uh, and and activists actually transformed the way we eat and made it safer and cleaner. I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, this is yet another part of this, you know, revolutionary changes in food that were happening at the time were new efforts to impose more control over what was happening with um, the production of food. When, when much of food production had been, had taken place in the home, there had been, you know, little reason or seemingly little reason to, to try to, you know, make these big, um, this, the, you know, to try to impose oversight on food production because it was so, um, it was so atomized. It was happening in, in, you know, all over the place. And I, and I really, you know, to an extent that can be hard for modern people to probably take in today, um, you know, things like ketchup or vinegar or, you know, sauces or butter, you know, all of this was made at home. It was all made at home. Cheese, not all of it, but but for the majority of Americans who were living on farms, um, there was a huge degree of, you know, home production of food. That is changing by the early 20th century. It changes quite quickly, actually. Um, and, you know, of course, by the 1880s, there's a lot of factory production that's starting with canned goods, with boxed goods. And immediately <laughs> people start cheating. They, they start adulterating. You know, it is very interesting. I'm sure, also, you know, adulteration sometimes happened at, you know, with, with, you know, small producers in local places. But there's this real explosion that happens once people who are producing food no longer see or know the people who are eating it. You know, it, it raises interesting questions about our, you know, our comfort with doing potentially harmful things when we don't see the people or we don't, we don't know who's, who's on the receiving end of that. Um, so adulteration was legitimately a problem. Adulteration could mean adding harmful things to food. It could mean adding brick dust to try to make some product red. It could mean, um, you know, adding chalk to things or other inedible substances. But sometimes adulteration just meant passing something off as um, a superior product. For example, olive oil was subject to a ton of adulteration with people trying to pass off inferior oils as olive oil. This still happens today <laughs> to some extent. Um, so there were legitimate concerns about adulteration and about consumers' knowledge about food in a food system that was increasingly complex and long distance. So that was, um, you know, a, a real concern for ordinary people, something that, um, you know, Harvey Wiley's Poison Squad of the early 20th century, which in which he, he fed volunteers um, common additives in, in huge quantities to, to see if they got sick, this... this you know, not incredibly, uh, you know, rigorous scientifically, but really, um, you know, geared towards, um, a, a, you know, media attention, which it, uh, which it got a huge amount of. Um, so when the acts pass in 1906, and you know, this is a really big deal. This is one of the the major pieces of progressive era legislation. Period, um, and it it did provide more oversight. Um, of food production, it you know gave some teeth to um, prosecuting people who are adulterating food. I think it can be the extent of the act and its effects can be somewhat overstated. I mean, and you know, I think sometimes in high school people are taught that this changed everything and this you know was suddenly everything was safe to eat. Adulteration certainly still happened <laughs> after this point. There there was. 
Um, you know, people, there wasn't, for example, labeling on our foods, you know, for decades and decades after this, you know, people still didn't know actually what their food contained, even when it wasn't adulterated, there was still, there wasn't labeling, there were no nutrition facts or anything like this. So, but it was, it was a big deal. It showed um, the potential power of government um, and it gave consumers peace of mind uh, about something that was crucial for everybody. Yeah, and it still happens too. And absolutely, <laughs> there was a horse meat scandal in the UK and Ireland only a few years back that yep. shocked everyone. So yeah, it's, it's well put. Um, the other thing you point out in your book is that how we ate in the Gilded Age is kind of like virtue signaling, and that if we ate well and we ate the right things, and that was the right you know move for food security, and and therefore you're acting morally. But this is also, as we know, this is the age of great excess for some people and, and the wealthy, really. How does their dinner pail look? And what were the most outlandish recipes of the time that, you know, were not taking into account ideas of food security or uh, or, or, act, or living within your means, like really out there recipes? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one interesting thing is, you know, we talk about the Gilded Age and Progressive Era as a sort of time period. But there, when it comes to food, there really is a hinge in some ways with the 20th century. You, a lot of the changes that I focus on are changes that happen around 1900 or afterwards. So you see things happening in the Gilded Age that become unfashionable or change pretty quickly, you know, in the, in the sort of center of the progressive era, the, you know, the 1900s, the 1910s. Um, one of those was the way that wealthy people ate. Um, to some extent, Gilded Age banqueting was really over the top. Um, I have an edited book uh, about food in the Gilded Age, and one of the chapters is about the banquets of the wealthiest Americans. And it was it was pretty fascinating <laughs> to, to research it and to look into it, um, just because the the kind of excess that Americans who could afford to do so were eating in the 1870s and 80s and 90s was so over the top that I, I I had moments where I would look at some of these menus and I'd say, no, wait, was this actually a menu where they were choosing from the menu and just having a few of these things? But no, research would confirm this was a menu describing the meal and the many courses, you know, sometimes, you know, 10, 12 courses, depending, you know, on, for a really Baroque banquet. Um, with just more food than in in some in some cases more food than anyone could come close to consuming, you know it's no accident that Veblen coined conspicuous consumption. You know in the middle of the Gilded Age, this was conspicuous consumption, in the most literal, unself conscious way. It was or, or it was self conscious, but it was intentional. It was it was showing off that the wealthiest Americans had, um, you know, the ability to command other people's labor. They had the ability to buy the best of everything from all over the globe. Um, and they had the time to, to sit down. Sometimes, you know, some banquets lasted five hours. They were really, really long. Um, and and some, some people describe them as, as somewhat unpleasant. They were, so, you know, people would get bored. They couldn't eat all of the food that was parading by. If you weren't next to someone who was a good conversationalist, I think it could get boring after a while. Um, and so, you know, some of those, some of those meals were, um, some of the individual recipes were just, you know, how many 
different kinds of, um, you know, meat can we have in a, in a single meal? How many, you know, kind of from songbirds to, um, you know, geese, lots of different species, many more species than most Americans eat today. Um, and, and much of it done in the style of French high cuisine. French, French high cuisine was, you know, at its apex in popularity in the late 19th century. And what you see in the early 20th century is I think a fatigue, you know, with, with this absolute, um, the absolute excess with the time it was taking. And I think also probably with the heaviness of the food itself, you see this real emphasis, including among some wealthy Americans on wanting to eat more simply, on wanting to, you know, as they put it, return to the food of our colonial forebearers. Some, some you know, a lot of that's an imagined sort of um, genealogy, but this idea that, um, you know, Americans could and sh maybe should as, you know, as this kind of pioneer people, you know, this is not my words. These are, these are the words of um, the people I study. Um, eat more simply, have a robust and healthful diet that didn't take so long, that didn't have so many ingredients. And you start to see some people really hold up simple food as being nutritionally important. You know, people start to argue, not based on evidence, but they start to argue that stomachs could eat, could, could, could digest food better when it had fewer ingredients, that we shouldn't eat too much because that would overload our stomachs and tax it. There's this new concern with digestion that's, that's not, you know, that's not really supported by new advances in science. It's, it's a lot of theorizing from people. Uh, and a, part of it is a reaction against the French high cuisine. Part of it absolutely is a reaction to the growing number of immigrants and a sense that many immigrants were eating different from native born Americans. Um, and that, you know, complicated stews or goulashes or, um, mixed foods with many constituent ingredients and spices that those were different and that those were somehow un-American. So you get this whole this whole perfect storm going on at the time that results in this this fashion really for a simple you know supposedly simple plain food that was supposedly easier for you know to digest. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And I'm just wondering, have you had a chance to pull any of these menu items and cook them at home, try them? And if so... Please tell me it's something outlandish and unhealthy, as well as something that might be a little bit more <laughs> you know, reasonable, like the pendulum in your house. Does it swing back and forth between that excess and that, you know, simplicity? So, you know, I, I love to cook and I love to eat. Uh, many progressive era recipes are not incredibly appealing to me. Um, I've made food, for, some foods from the Civil War era. I've made... I've made some foods from the Gilded Age, um, but I haven't made a whole lot of foods from the Progressive Era. There's the many of the recipes I study had that bent towards rationality. Um, things like, you know, oatmeal jelly. You know, oatmeal does congeal if you if you leave it. So you know, making a sort of sweet oatmeal and then letting it congeal and using that as a spread, or um, you know, soups made out of grains or, um, you know, various kind of organ meats that were starting, that were still in stock, that were still acceptable to Americans at the time. They had been acceptable throughout the 19th century and beyond, um, you know, cooked in a very plain way. It's, it's not incredibly appealing to me as an individual. So I haven't done a lot of cooking from the progressive era itself, to be honest. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder how, I mean, obviously we know there's a difference between what those really wealthy banquets are are serving uh, versus what the say the average person would be eating at the lower end of the income spectrum. I mean, how how does it look? And you know, what does their eating habits look like? Say, if you're a, a, a low earner or you're living in poverty, what are you doing to get by? Are you buying processed foods or foods that are industrially produced, or are you simply you know doing you know what you can on the the, the land that you have? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, one interesting thing to me is that by the 1930s and the Great Depression, it had become totally normal. It, it wasn't raising any eyebrows that hobos, quote unquote, image of the, you know, someone without a home in the 1930s was someone eating food out of a can, you know, which is actually interesting. That's a quite a modern food. That's a, you know, a, a, an industrial food that had probably been shipped from some other point, um, and by the 1930s, that had become utterly ordinary, cheap, widely accessible. The Progressive Era was a time when um, that kind of you know, factory-produced foods were becoming more widely available, but in some areas, they were still hard to get. They would have been more expensive. So it, it's hard to answer your question in some way because it depends on where you are and also when you are, you know, are we look, or, you know, in, in 1880, things were very different than 1910. In 1880, foods were starting to be produced in factories at a higher pace, but, but still they weren't, they weren't omnipresent in the way that they would be by 1930. Um, 
rural people, um, you know, we think of rural people as, you know, eating more fruits and vegetables. But of course, in wintertime, people who were farther from these arteries of food transportation were, were eating fewer vegetables and fewer fruits when they weren't growing in their own gardens. Whereas, you know, by, let's say, turn of the century, New York or, or another city, increasingly, whether from steamships or from railroads, um, and, you know, within another decade or two on trucks, um, people in urban places were able to get more produce during the winter. Now, it depended enormously on income, and it depended on ideas about food, too. You know, if, if meat continued to be something that Americans really prioritized, many Americans thought of wheat as a superior grain, but lots of Americans ate, a, you know, a somewhat vegetarian diet a lot of the time in practice, just because meat was expensive and it could be hard to get. Cornmeal was still widely consumed by a lot of Americans. Of course, we might think um, that Southerners ate a lot of cornmeal, and they did, but lots of people in the Northeast ate cornmeal, lots of people in the Midwest, um, lots of people on farms in on the Great Plains were, were eating lots of cornmeal. Um, so it, it's a difficult question. Honestly, there, there was a lot of diversity in how Americans ate. There still is. There's a huge amount of diversity. We, it, it's impossible to avoid writing about history without making some generalizations. But it, it's it's actually hard to pin down, you know, anything resembling a typical American diet. Sure. And I, I appreciate that. I and mean, even there going through the sections and talking about class, talking about uh, ethnicity or, you know, whether you're an immigrant. I mean, my family were immigrants. They they often talk about how they ate very differently uh, in New York than, than people who had lived there for more than a generation. Um, I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was a was also about eating out um, because the industrialization of food also means that it becomes possible. I think anyway, you might, you might tell me I'm wrong about this, but it makes it possible for restaurants to become more prolific or cafes and, and maybe even diners. I don't know the history of diners, but um, does takeout and, and does restaurant food become more popular in the late 19th, early 20th century? So takeout is not something that I have really seen. I, I wouldn't say it's, it was non-existent, but I don't remember ever seeing reference to takeout in the modern sense where you go to a restaurant and you pay money and you take the food home. Um, there were things that were kind of similar to that. Um, one, you know, as, as women were reimagining their roles vis-a-vis -vis food, one thing that some early feminists were arguing for were communal kitchens. They were well aware that, you know, women spend much of their time cooking and that prevented them from doing other things. And so some people, including Charlotte Perkins Gilman, um, you know, said, what if we have communal kitchens where on a block or in an apartment building, this was an urban vision, just, just because of logistics, you know, you need people close together. Um, we have, you know, women who take turns cooking for a large group of people, you know, and maybe you do it once a week or twice a week. It's your turn to cook. And on the other days, you don't have to cook. You can do other things. This was an incredibly liberating idea, um, which, which in some ways processed foods um, and, and these other time-saving devices, including electrification and then uh, uh, new appliances, this would in some ways take the same role. They would make food production easier. Um, 
you know, because that the, the women's movement, whether you're talking about first wave in the progressive era or much later, you know, if there's not food, that's that's a major issue. And so these things that we think of as oh, technological changes like, um, you know, we're no longer we no longer have to chop the wood to, to light the fire. Instead, we can use coal. We no longer have to use coal. We have an electric stove. These were watershed changes in the lives of women because it meant literally hours of people's time and processed food was incredibly important. Um, when I talk about processed food, you know, we think, I think when we use that term today, we automatically think of factories and we think of, um, you know, highly processed food, food that's really changed maybe even on a molecular level. Um, but food processing changed in the progressive era on a way that was much cruder in addition to the, the, the more highly processed foods, which was also starting, factory process, I mean, excuse me, food processing could include things like um, washing spinach before it was sold or um, milling flour or milling corn before you got it. Things that, you know, seem, we don't think of that as being a processed food today, but, or, or, or removing seeds from raisins. We, we just take it for granted that raisins don't have seeds and that, um, you know, our, our corn is milled before we buy it as cornmeal. But those, that was food processing and those were changes that happened at the same time, which all started this idea that, that women didn't necessarily have to spend much of, their, much of their lives in food production. But in terms of actual takeout, you don't see much. You do start to see more restaurants in this era. There were very few restaurants in 19th century America. You know, there were a few, you know, famous restaurants like Delmonico's and big cities. And when people were traveling, you know, they would be able to get meals um, in hotels, sometimes in train stations and in saloons. But there weren't terribly many restaurants in the 19th century. That starts to change in the Gilded Age. And it changes more in the Progressive Era. But there's still, it's still much less a part of most people's lives than we might assume today when restaurants are, are, you know, even people who live in pretty rural places, there are almost always some restaurants within striking distance, even if it's a fast food restaurant that you have to drive quite a ways to. It's just a part of everyone's lives. And it was not, restaurants were not parts of everyone's lives at this time. Diners, I, I've, um, I'm not aware of any diners in the progressive era. I, th I think it's generally a little too early um, there did start to be cafes. There started to be luncheonettes, um, especially in cities. Interesting to, to, to think about when that revolution happens as well. Um, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to plug your digital project, What America Ate, which is really a wonderful resource. I've been having a lot of fun searching the website, looking at uh, looking at recipes and old cookbooks, and especially the ones from New Jersey, which are <laughs> some, of, some of the recipes look absolutely terrible, really. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, can you tell us a little bit about the website and tell us a little bit about how it, we can use it to help understand the history of food? I'd love to hear your advice for, you know, for teachers that are teaching the, the Depression era and how they might be able to use this website. Yep, absolutely. So I um, became really fascinated by this project that happened in the 1930s. It was a federal project supported by the WPA. Um, which was happening in the wake of all these changes that we've just been talking about. Um, as food production was increasingly centralized and done in factories. And as a result, as, as Americans started eating less regionally, 
as people started eating more like each other, as, as cookbooks were published that made it possible for people to easily get um, cookbooks, you know, or sorry, to easily get recipes from other regions, there started to be this homogenization that worried people or, or that, you know, be in a nostalgic way, but also I think in a, a sort of a concern for a loss of cultural diversity, people said, you know, we're, we're going to lose regional diets and cuisines, and we need to, at the very least, record what they are. How are people eating differently in different places? And so at the very end of the 1930s, the WPA uh, sent out about 200 people around the country, writers and just a couple of photographers, to try to document Americans' regional foodways. Um, they, the, the goal at the time had been to produce a big book about America's national cuisine and you know, done in five different regions with recipes and stories. And the project was underway when um, Pearl Harbor happened and America entered the war and the project was just shelved. It, it all of these, some of the reports were still out in the field with the writers. Some of them had been sent in, some had been sent to state um, bureaucrats rather than to the national center. And they just kind of languished for decades. There, no, there was no subsequent effort, at least for decades later, to consolidate them, to, to recreate what had been this, this national project. So our website was an attempt to do that. It was an attempt to gather as many of these far-flung descriptions and writings about Americans eating um, as we could. Now, of course, to us what it is, it's less, it's less about what, how do Americans eat in different places. Now, of course, it's just a time capsule. It's how were Americans eating in the 1930s and also in the Depression. So it's, it's this really interesting um, and valuable collection of sources that are a little spotty. I mean, they're, they're not covering every place. The writers were selective. They, they tended to prioritize um, habits or food traditions of poorer people and of immigrants. They, they were not interested in hearing about people cooking with highly processed foods and in a modern way. They wanted the least modern um, and the most rustic descriptions of food that they can get. But of course, for a historian, that's fabulous because <laughs> those are the ones that are usually left out of magazines and cookbooks and the sources that, that we can easily access. So it's a really fascinating collection. Um, but we also, we didn't want to create this kind of falsely nostalgic picture of American eating because if all you had were these documents, you'd, you'd think like all Americans were sort of, you know, having these, you know, really rustic or, or interesting immigrant dishes. So we also digitized hundreds of food advertisements and um, ephemera from food marketers just to give a sense of, you know, the, the real depth of industrial food production at the time. And we also combined it with um, photographs. Um, from that that had been taken around the same time related to food from um, another WPA group. And we combined it with recipes from community cookbooks. Community cookbooks are those often spiral bound, um, locally printed cookbooks that organizations would produce like PTAs or churches or synagogues or, or something like that, or, you know, a local club. Um, often they did them to raise money, but they're also really fabulous sources because 
it was often just individual women, sometimes men, but by far the most, um, most of the contributors were women sending in their favorite recipes. And so you get this, you know, what actually is another really valuable regional look at American eating. So what America ate, our website combines all of those, um, the people who designed the website, who I, who I worked with, um, did a, a really beautiful job. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty website. It's fun. Um, our hope is that people who are not necessarily academics will enjoy it and also that students will use it. So we, we really do want it to be a resource for teachers too. Yeah, I'm, I'm already thinking of ways that I can use it in, in the classroom. It's really amazing. And the sectional views are fantastic as well. So you can you can search by different regions of the U.S. and then drill into states and some localities as well. Uh, fantastic resource. Um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, well, something that is really getting to the heart of what we're talking about today and about food and the centrality of it. One of my favorite uh, celebrity chefs is Mark Bittman. You might know him. He's they're known as the, um, the minimalist. He's a New York Times food writer and, and celebrity chef. He wrote recently a popular history of food from the advent of agriculture to what we eat currently, our, our current diet. And I love it because he makes the case that food is as important as iPhones and atom bombs and that it's central to our, our life. But if the act of eating is a daily thing for most of us, and as you said, it's central to our survival, how do we stay mindful about the centrality of food and how do we keep that in our consciousness, not just as people that, that eat, but as historians as well? How do I write that into my history of U.S. politics in the Gilded Age? Yeah, that's a great, that's a really great question. Um, I'm a big fan of Mark Bittman. Um, I think uh, he, he's really great at communicating to a wide audience. I... Um, I, I really agree with him that, you know, food is this kind of invisible, this invisible presence in a lot of regular history, history that does not include food often intentionally, certainly not explicitly. Um, I think it's, it, it, it can, you know, I, I think you can write fabulous histories that don't, that don't have any food in them on, you know, that, that where there's no obvious food. But I also think it's really important in all sorts of ways. One, one is the, you know, the big question, the, the survival question, the, you know, how certainly governments, you know, no government can function without knowing that it has a reliable food supply. And behind the curtain, you know, often the curtain of our daily, of our daily lives are, are always you know, major efforts to ensure that food supply, whether it's, um, you know, taking land from other people to, you know, to create farms, whether it's supporting um, colonization efforts far away, whether it's, um, you know, fighting for the right to have food sovereignty, whether it's um, ensuring preservation techniques that will allow food to stay good. I mean, one, one part of food is that you can't just you can't just ensure a food supply and then you have it and you have it forever. You're constantly using it. And it's also constantly in, in, you know, in some sort of a state of decay, you know, and even with preserve, even preservation techniques, you know, they, they, they don't last forever. You, you always have to renew the supply. Um, of course, going forward, climate change is going to be a major, you know, apocalyptically um, important event with our food supply. I mean, I, Americans, 
you're born in the 20th century or the 21st century, you know, a lot of Americans, especially middle-class Americans, upper-middle-class Americans, wealthy Americans take food for granted. You know, we, we, we try to burn it off at the gym. We try not to eat too much or we eat as much as we want. We don't care, but we're, you know, we take it for granted. And it's, I think likely that during our lifetimes that will change, whether it changes a little or a lot, we don't know yet, but climate change is already um, affecting agriculture around the world. It's, um, it's going to do so much, much more, um, dramatically than it has yet if, if current projections continue. So, you know, what, what this might become is this kind of strange period where for a hundred or so years, people didn't think much about food on a daily basis. They didn't worry much about food. And, you know, and I just want to re I've said it before, but I just want to emphasize, I realize that that is not the experience of all Americans, an astounding and horrifying percentage of Americans are food insecure, you know, which is shocking for the wealthiest country in the world. But, you know, depending on estimates between a 10th and a fifth of all Americans are, are food insecure with children, especially likely to be food insecure. So when I talk about, you know, the abundance and our, um, you know, not caring about food or not thinking about it, that's not true for, for a significant and important percentage of Americans. But for many, for many of us, it is. We don't think about food; we take it for granted. Um, and Helen, was that more was that more acute in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era? Was there was food insecurity among the the poorest? Was that worse, or was it better back then? That's a good question. It was it was certainly worse then. It was better in the mid twentieth century. It was worse in the Progressive Era. I mean, they weren't there still weren't basic um, you know social welfare reforms in the nineteen tens. Um, you know, there was no, for just, just one small example, there was no mandatory public schooling yet, you know, nationally in the 1910s. It was, it soon would happen, but it hadn't happened yet. There was no school lunch, you know, something that's quite an important factor in combating food insecurity for, for many children. Um, there was more, the poverty was deeper. It, you know, it's interesting though, like what people, you know, things that today people don't use because they think of them as inedible, some people were eating. You know, they were eating more parts of animals back then. They were eating more, many more species. Um, there was more knowledge, especially in rural places, about about botany and what was edible. And, you know, these, it's food is always cultural to some extent, it, it, you know, even in cases of deprivation. So... Those are all factors. I mean, I don't, this is a very roundabout way to answer your question about mindfulness and incorporating food into, into other kinds of histories. Once you start to read about it, though, it's, it becomes kind of inescapable. You do start to see it everywhere. Um, and, you, you know, we can always ask ourselves, you know, what were they eating? Where, where were they getting it from? Who was making it? You know, we, we think of food as being women's work. And, you know, I've been talking about cooking and women. Cooking was was really feminized, tons of exceptions to that, but cooking was deeply feminized in the progressive era. But food was a lot of people's work. It wasn't just women's work, you know, still in the 1910s, the majority of Americans were farmers. You know, food was everybody's work and many more people gardened and, and kept animals even in urban places. So, you know, I think part of it is just opening our eyes a little bit to and thinking a little bit more about daily life. 
This is this is great. I want to wrap up by just saying that you also write for general and academic audiences too. You do a lot of crossover writing, and I was just wondering, out of well, maybe from both of those, they're not that different necessarily. But um, what surprises us most about food then and today, or what surprises you, I should say, most about food that you've studied in the past and and what's going on today? I, you know. I think a lot about food taboos. I'm really interested in, we were, I was just talking about this a second ago about things that we think of as edible or not. Um, I think there's, I, I suspect both because of climate change and there are these conversations going on about what's, what's edible and what's not, um, that things that we now think of as being inedible are going to become um, more normalized. Things like insects. I think that's going to be, you know, maybe not. This is a total prediction. Who knows? Well, just to say, there's a there's a huge factory that's just opened up down the road in Limerick from from where I am right now, and they are harvesting. It's the first factory of its kind in Ireland. They're harvesting crickets and other sort of grubs, I think, uh, for flour as a flour. Uh, uh, Absolutely. Right. Yeah, which is a much more. I mean, that's a purposeful move. Because for people who haven't grown up eating insects and who have been trained to think of them as inedible, which a group that includes myself, I should add, I'm not, I'm not a, an enthusiastic insect eater, but it's much more, much more comprehensive, it's much more possible for me to consider eating it if it's in the form of a flower. Um, and, you know, we do eat insects all the time, whether, whether we want to or not, you know, insect, I worked in a bakery and, you know, you, there, there are insects in our grains Obviously, some people go to greater lengths, especially if they keep kosher to avoid that. But for most of us, that we we are already eating insects, um, and that's and the government knows, and it's allowed, you know, in in small in small quantities. Um, but it's food is so you know I say it's cultural. It's also so mental. <laughs> it's about what we think of as being good to eat. This is you know a, a truism of, of food scholarship. Um, but you know, in what's good to eat changes from culture to culture. And it changes from era to era. Um, and that's what's so fascinating about, you know, being a historian of food is you see even in your supposedly your own culture, you know, American culture, it's not your own culture. It's, it's a very different culture if you go back even a few generations um, in ways that seem, especially with food, just um, physically kind of surprising. You, you can really feel viscerally um, that cultural difference when you know that people in the past were eating things that seemed disgusting to you and they were doing it thinking of themselves as having the same kind of national identity that that you have today that's that's a really interesting feeling that's that's fantastic and that's the that's a great way to wrap things up and and uh, Helen, it's been wonderful speaking to you and now I'm thinking about all the gross food that I've tried and, and I have <laughs> try and uh, it's, it's been wonderful to talk about uh, everything from what kids ate back then to what the the divide between rich and poor this has been so illuminating thanks so much for joining me thanks so much for asking me mike <laughs> well that's all we have time for thanks for listening you can follow the gilded age and progressive era on twitter or on my website michaelpatrickcullenane.com Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.